For decades, General Electric was seen as the ultimate American company. It made everything from toasters to jet engines. And GE believed the reason it could succeed at so many different businesses was because it knew how to run companies better than anyone else. GE had this view that they could do things better, that their managers understood how to run companies, any company. Our colleague Tom Greta says this notion that GE had something special was widely held in corporate America. But last week... An American icon splits up. General Electric is splitting into three separate companies. The end of an era for the 129-year-old industrial powerhouse. Over the next few years, GE will turn into three separate public companies. One in healthcare, one in aviation, and one in power and renewables. The move marks the end of an iconic American company that had once been the standard for how U.S. businesses should be run. To me, this is like, you know, the mythology of GE, that for decades people looked at GE as the example of, of corporate excellence. And, of course, its decline was moved along through mismanagement. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. It's Monday, November 15th. Coming up on the show, how the company seen as the gold standard for management mismanaged its way out of existence. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. Last week's announcement that GE would be breaking up is the final chapter for a company that's been around for well over 100 years. GE started when the financier J.P. Morgan took Thomas Edison's electricity company and combined it with several others. With the idea behind it that if you're going to deal in something like electricity and electrification, you need a lot of capital and you need scale. And so J.P. Morgan rolled it together and created General Electric. GE became one of the original 12 companies to make up the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Early on, its blockbuster product was the light bulb. But by the middle of the 20th century, GE was innovating in many industries. They get into the healthcare business through building one of the first X-ray machines. They design a turbo for a, an engine that, that would enable planes to fly higher. Today, General Electric turbojets are doing their job powering the great new planes they were designed for. They're building these major components of the machinery under America. Never mind that there's all this consumer-facing stuff, right? Like, they are building refrigerators back in the day, the first refrigerators of these GE machines. You know, electric fans, toasters. In the General Electric toaster oven that toasts both sides at once, evenly, perfectly. And, and at its peak... What role did GE have in the U.S. economy? 
you know, people like to say that it was a proxy for the U.S. economy. You know, that GE logo, again, just everywhere, everybody recognizes it. The idea was that with so many different businesses, GE could ride out the economy's ups and downs. But taking all these disparate divisions with thousands of employees required strong leadership. And that role fell on Jack Welch when he became CEO in 1981. He'd risen up through GE's plastics division, and he had a management style that quickly set him apart. He was gruff. He was known for knowing the businesses very well. Like, he knew his company. So you're running a company. You better get, get your butt out into the field. You had to make your numbers at all costs. He only wanted to be in businesses that were number one or number two in their industry. He didn't see any reason to go lower than that, right? He used to say, you know, fix it, close it, or sell it. You have to make a decision here. If it's not a winning business, we get rid of it. And, and if you've got a company that has a mentality inside that is filled with searching for a better idea every day, not just as a slogan, but as a real concept, you will have innovation around you all the time. Not a lot of sentimentality. You get the sense that any business inside GE is temporary, could be temporary. According to Welch, it wasn't just business units that might be temporary. He did the rank and yank, which was the idea that you would rank all the workers under you and that the bottom 10% would be fired or at least put on notice that they're, if they don't shape up, they're gone. The best thing you can do to an employee is early on, as early as you know they're the bottom 10, let them know so they can go on and adjust their life and get in the right game, in the right level of company. That's, in my view, a kinder, gentler company than the company that winks at the truth. The GE way may have been aggressive, but it got results. GE's stock was doing very well in the late 90s. I think his sort of straight-from-the-gut gruff attitude and, you know, winning, and like that was admired because of the performance. I mean, there were people on the shop floor who were becoming millionaires because the stock was becoming so good. I mean, it was, of course, any corporate leader would want to emulate that success. And other companies did try to emulate that success by hiring executives who'd been coached by Welch. His deputies went on to lead companies like Home Depot, 3M, and Boeing. As GE soared to new heights, the company continued to diversify. GE acquired NBC and also got into insurance. Most notably, Welch bulked up on GE's financial services division, called GE Capital. So how did GE Capital work? Basically, what they could do was borrow money at that low rate using their industrial business's credit in order to then loan it to others at a higher rate. They didn't have the same regulatory oversight that the sort of bigger Wall Street banks had, which helped. They could be sort of be more nimble. And that influenced the culture. Like, I think they thought that they had sort of outsmarted Wall Street. Like, here's this place where they could sort of use the tools of Wall Street to make a lot of money, but not be regulated in the same way. GE Capital had started out as a lending option for customers buying GE products. But as it grew, it began financing everything from mortgages and restaurant franchises to oil drilling operations. Eventually, it became the most profitable part of the whole company. And how big did GE Capital get relative to the rest of GE? 
Um, I mean, it was half of the company's earnings, which is enormous. At its peak in 2000, GE was America's most valuable company, worth $600 billion. A year later, Welch retired and was held up as one of the best business leaders of his generation. But with the benefit of hindsight, GE had become so complex that it would start to become unmanageable. And the man who found that out was Jeff Immelt, Welch's successor. Immelt was from Ohio, and his father had had a long career at GE. Immelt came into the top job wanting to make his own mark on the company. It might be easiest to think of him as just being so different from Jack. He didn't have that gruff, rank and yank, make your numbers or else. He's very good at talking to people. He knows how to sort of work a room. He's optimistic and could be captivating and almost like a politician. But Immelt's soft touch ran into some hard realities that would ultimately lead to GE's unraveling. It started right as he took charge in September 2001. Jeff Immelt used to tell this story about how after September 11th, there was a big sell-off of GE's stock. And part of that was because some of their insurance business covered some of the damage. And he spoke to one of the shareholders and said, hey, you know, could you just sort of slow down on selling the stock here? Like, we're getting killed. And the holder said basically, like, I had no idea that you were in insurance. And of course, Jeff's answer to that was, well, like, you know, how could you not know that? Like, that's on, you know, essentially that's on you. Like, which is true, but like how many other people didn't know that GE was an insurance? 9-11 started to show the risks inside GE's financial services business. But it was the financial crisis that really exposed how unwieldy and opaque GE Capital had become. GE needed a government bailout, and that brought on more regulation for GE Capital and would hurt its profits. Eventually, Immelt decided to sell off most of GE Capital, a decision that would have consequences for the rest of the company. What deeper problems did this crisis reveal about GE's businesses? It um, either reveals or creates a problem they have to solve, which is that GE Capital was just pivotal to them making their numbers. It created uh, this sort of gaping hole where they used to have a lot of earnings power. But Immelt had a plan to make up for the loss of GE Capital's earning power. He would lean into the company's legacy of innovation and its management prowess and bulk up its industrial operation with a giant acquisition. GE is in talks to buy Alstom's energy assets for as much as $13 billion. That would make it the largest acquisition ever for GE. But this strategy, which was supposed to help GE recover, would set it on a path to break up. That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com journal. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI enables rapid access to secure, traceable, hallucination-free insights from enterprise systems, all while using any LLM. 
helping enterprises turn the invisible into the obvious. Learn more at c3.ai. Jeff Immelt's plan was to streamline GE. He'd sell off the financial services division and refocus the company around its industrial businesses. So in 2014, Immelt announced GE was acquiring a struggling French company called Alstom. The two companies competed for sales of things like railway and power equipment. He said, you know, there would be huge upside from this deal. And the, the opportunity for it was just, you know, it was going to change what GE was. And this was going to be sort of the beginning of the new GE focused on its industrial operations. But Alstom was in worse shape than they thought. And the, the review of the deal was more than a year. In that time, Alstom deteriorated. It got even worse. Immelt had hoped Alstom would revive GE's industrial operation. Instead, GE lost billions on the deal, and it was a stain on Immelt's tenure and on GE as a whole. The strain on Immelt became clear at a conference in Florida. For a guy who people said could be as smooth as a politician... He was flustered. And Jeff is someone who's, like, pretty polished, pretty smooth... We didn't get that openly flustered. It was it was a little bit of a different Jeff. And that was really the end for him. That weekend was, you know, he left that meeting. He got calls from investors asking what was going on. You know, I think even in his own book, he talks about how he realized it was it was over. Like he had lost the confidence of investors and he felt like there was no there was no sort of hope at that point. Within weeks of that conference, GE announced Immelt was stepping down. Since then, Immelt has admitted to making mistakes, but has defended the purchase of Alstom and his management decisions. He said the business environment and external events led to the company's issues, not only his decisions. Immelt's successor, John Flannery, later revealed that the company was in much worse shape than understood. GE would have to do the unthinkable, cut its payout to shareholders, the quarterly dividend. They cut the dividend, which is gasp for for GE. And he makes this statement, which is shocking, is that GE has not been producing enough cash flow to cover its dividend for years, which is nuts. That means they are paying a dividend to shareholders but they don't actually have the cash. Now, you should only be doing that with excess cash, right? Just like you should only be buying back shares if you have excess cash because investors want you to invest your money in the company for future growth. So John Flannery is coming out with these revelations. The stock price is just ticking down every day. GE was in full-blown crisis. And a little more than a year after Flannery took the job, the board brought in a new CEO, Larry Culp an outsider who had a reputation for achieving efficiency. Culp needed to find a path forward for the sprawling conglomerate. He would talk a lot about, you know, getting away from the race to the end of the quarter, to making the numbers. Like, he basically was like, that's not how companies should run. Like, things you should be doing business. You know, like, you shouldn't be racing to make the end. And he's wanted to unwind that. It had fallen to Culp to clean up the situation at GE. Here he is talking about his plan to split up GE in a CNBC interview last week. I think the logic is pretty straightforward. 
We think we have an opportunity here as well to have sharper capital allocation and more strategic flexibility. And clearly this is a good thing. So does this mark the end of conglomerates? Like help us understand what a break this is with the way GE has been managed for a century. I feel like we can't overstate it. I mean, it's the end, right? It is. They are no longer holding on to this philosophy that having diverse businesses helps create an overall smoother operation. The old GE model has been withering away. Now it's this is you're sort of really cutting it from the vine. But this notion that GE could create and spit out managers that could manage any kind of business is gone. Yeah. GE had this, this view that they could come in and make any company better, that they somehow had figured out how business works, and that, you know, if an asset is owned by them, it's worth more just because it's owned by them. That was like the core of what the GE way was, I think, that you could, we knew how to do it. We could run it right. We had a process for, for making this work. That's over. And a note before you go. This episode's been updated. In an earlier version, we said GE's market cap reached $600 billion in 2001. That actually happened in 2000. That's all for today, Monday, November 15th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. Additional reporting in this episode from Ted Mann. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.